Amen. Kevin, thank you so much. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Thank you for being here this morning. It's an honor to have you with us, especially if you're watching online. You're able to be here this morning. Thank you for joining us here. But good to see all of you all here this morning. Um, how many of you have um, special Christmas traditions relative to decorating your tree with your family? Anyone do that together as a family? All right, about seven of us do that together. Did everyone else decorate their tree, or we not do that here this morning? All right, now I'm just kidding. Listen, in our family, we've done it for a long time, and uh, Thanksgiving is over. Uh, right after Thanksgiving, we get our tree up. Is that about normal range? All right, how many of you are like October tree putter-uppers? Okay. Yep, so there's a support group for y'all. We'll have you meet later on afterwards. Over the years for our family, it's been different. Um, when our kids were younger, it wasn't always the most exciting time of our post-Thanksgiving event. It was like, really? We have to put the Christmas decorations up again? And it was a little bit of like, you know, pulling teeth to make that happen. Uh, can anyone relate just a head nod here a little bit to that? Um, thank you. All right, good. This year, however, was different. This year was a different year for us. Our children are no longer super small. In fact, our youngest is taller than me at 6'3", I believe, something like that. And uh, so we had an interesting Christmas decorating time in our house this year. We got all the decorations out on the couches around the living room. It's kind of chaotic. You're trying not to step on the lights and people and whatever. So my son decided, I'm going to throw Luke under the bus for a minute. My son decided it would be fun to throw things on the tree. Um, that sometimes belonged and sometimes didn't. And so you take the decoration out of the box and then you throw the box up on the tree and see if the box will stick on the tree, right? Just because sometimes you need to do that. Well, then that kind of rolled into let's stick random things on the tree that aren't decorations that are in the living room and then that are in the kitchen. And then all of a sudden we look around and there's a banana on top of our tree, right? And to which my wife was like, get that off my tree, get the banana off my tree. But she can't reach the top of the tree, but he can because he's 6'3". And so he puts the banana back on the tree, and she somehow gets it down by step on a chair, and then guess what? It goes back up. He can get the banana off my tree. Get the banana. So we finally get the banana off my tree. But then she asks him to put the tree topper on our tree, which is a beautiful old, because uh, your great-grandmother made it, um, angel. Thank you about the size of my, my hand, and it, I don't know, it's made of a doily and starched, and I don't even know what you do, what that means, but uh, anyway, it's stiff, and it's white, and it's, you know, all that a 15-year-old boy loves to do. So we asked him to put it on top of the tree, and he's like, this is a stupid, like, tree topper. All right, this is dumb. <clears throat> now, to which he's like, we need a tree topper that matches our banana, and so he began to look uh, for better tree toppers, and on Amazon found, uh, believe it or not, a um, King Kong tree topper. Now, that, uh, and, and, you know, motivated by the banana experience, we thought, what could fit that moment? And King Kong was the best thing that came to mind. There was, however, a problem. And the problem was the King Kong tree topper cost $50. Kind of steep for a tree topper, isn't it? To which then we put our foot down, me, mostly Jen, I'm, I don't really care. Anyway, uh, you are not going to buy a tree top for $50. It's not going to happen. Well, undeterred by the roadblock in the path, he decided, you know what we're going to do? And now his older sister decided to help him out. They sit down on the couch, and they, they do this. And some of you actually know some of this story. They created a GoFundMe for King Kong under the hopes, wishes, and dreams category of GoFundMe. Please fund King Kong at $50. And here's what it read, just so you get this, all right? Hello. We are two siblings who are in need of a better tree topper. Our mom would not let us use a banana as the tree topper. 
Terrible parenting. So we are interested in buying King Kong to top our tree. However, this is $50 on Amazon, and we do not have the funds required to purchase this. That is a lie. <laughs> Thank you for your consideration and kind donation. To which we sit around like, you've got to be kidding me. It took four minutes. I can't believe that a 15-year-old is able to create a GoFundMe within 15 minutes and have it alive and legit where you, my friends, you can contribute to King Kong right away. The, the problem was you have to contribute a minimum of $5. That was a win for us and a loss for the kids because Jen and I are like, there's no way that anyone in their right mind is going to fund King Kong for our tree topper, right? However, there are some people, even who are in the hearing of my words here today, <laughs> Who thought it was a good idea to fund King Kong at a decent level? Within a couple hours, there are $20 in for King Kong, and there's a comment made on the GoFundMe page. I'm not going to call out who it was who made the comment, <laughs> but they also might be married to our student ministry's pastor, but that's just hypothetically speaking. Okay, it read this, the depth of significance of this tree topper could not go unfunded. I only wish there were more youth like this in today's world bonding together for a common good a cause bigger than themselves. <laughs> Isn't that inspiration? And so here we sit, no clapping. Did someone clap for that? That should not have been. <laughs> so here we sit in this moment, wondering if little King Kong or big King Kong will ever one day decorate the top of our tree. Within a few hours, $20 are in, but then here's the problem. Money stopped coming in. Yeah, yeah, it's sad, isn't it? Money stopped coming in that night and the next day and the next day and the next day. And then we really began to wonder, and we had, if you will, a crisis of faith. <laughs> will King Kong ever find a home on our tree or not? What will happen to King Kong? And we found ourselves, if you will, kind of on either side of this thing where Jen and I are like, there's not going to be more people who are really going to fund this thing. And the kid's like, yeah, we can do it, we can do it, we can do it. And we were stuck in the middle of will it happen or won't it happen? Will it come or won't it come? Will it be here or won't it be here? And if I can use my little friend King Kong as a metaphor for life for a minute, I would argue that we all find ourselves in that tension of wondering sometimes. Will this get resolved? Won't it get resolved? Will I get better? Won't I get better? Will I get the job? Won't I get the job? Will God come through? Won't he come through? And in that space of wondering, will what I hope for ever materialize? This is where faith lives. And this is where faith is challenged. This is the battleground of faith, the real practical feet on the ground battleground where you wonder, what if God doesn't come through for you again? What if your friends aren't able to pull you out of this one or your positive thinking can't get you going in the right direction? This is the battleground of faith. And I would, uh, this morning, I, as I think about a faithful Christmas, a Christmas where we come together and not just enjoy the Christmas presents around the tree, but I hope you do enjoy that time. What does it look like for us to be people who are drawn again to faith? What does faith look like in the middle of the tension? Because this year, for many of us, in the past couple of years, it's, it can be almost like what we can relate to the Apostle Paul when he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9. He said, we're hard-pressed 
on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Like there are things that have just gone really hard, but then we're not really dead yet. But it gets harder. We're still here. I mean, that's difficult, but we're here. We're fighting through all kinds of things, and it's in that tension of will it, won't it, will it, won't it, how will it all work out, that we're invited to consider, are you going to choose faith or not? And I love the way Dan Allender puts it in one of his books. He says, he says it this way, that you can't live without trusting someone, and you can't live without being betrayed. Both are true. Your life and my life represent the reality of both of these spectrums. I can't live and you can't live without trusting someone, even if that someone is yourself. Even if you've been so jaded by being burned by everybody else, you're going to trust something or someone that's going to be you. And then at some point you realize, I even disappoint myself. <laughs> I'm not even as trustworthy as I would like to be. But you can't live and I can't live without trusting people and at the same time knowing that we will be betrayed. And so what in the world are we supposed to do? And at this Christmas, I want to encourage you this way, and this is what I want to say this morning, and I want to encourage you this way. I want to encourage you to wager, wager that God exists and that he is good. And I don't underestimate the power of that ask for you, because some of you looking back here at me this morning, you have stories that you have yet even to verbalize to anybody. That if I were to sit with you, there'd be a reason where you haven't been in church for a long time. There've been reasons why you haven't prayed for a long time. There've been reasons why you doubt that Christianity is real or authentic or that, that God is even present or personal or cares. So there's reasons for that. You've gone through significant pain and hurt in your past or maybe in your present. And for me to stand up here and say, I want to encourage you that God exists and he is good. <laughs> Come on, for real? And I would say, yes. I want to encourage you to wager, because the alternative, the alternative is to wager your life on betrayal. That God isn't good and doesn't exist. And if that's what you're looking for, then that is what you will find. This morning, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture. We see two people react in different ways to a wild, wild promise by God. It's in the Gospel of Luke. It's the uh, third book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair near you. I want to invite you to grab that. That's our gift to you if you don't have it. But Luke chapter 1, Luke, by the way, he wrote this gospel, and he introduces it. He says, I'm, I'm writing an orderly account for you. I'm writing an orderly account. So if you're someone who wants to know the facts or the details of what went down, then Luke's gospel is for you. He wrote it so that you wouldn't have to wonder what actually happened with Jesus. And in Luke chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 5 in a second. Um, I just want to, we want to walk through two quick stories this morning. By way of background, let me tell you what's, what you're about to hear, uh, and then I'll read the passage with you in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. You're about to hear a story of a guy named Zechariah, but you need to understand this, that we're going to get into a moment where there was a priest who went in to offer incense in the temple. I want to take you back briefly, really briefly, hundreds of years prior, where King David took the priest and divided them into 24 divisions. There was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of priests. And then the exile of Israel happened, where the nation of Israel was sent out and displaced. As they returned hundreds of years later from King David's time, as they returned, they were beginning to kind of put a patchwork together again of what the priestly line should look like and what their service should look like. And so there was still divisions of priests, organizations or groups of them, and these priests now, in this time that we're about to read, they would report in to work, if you will, report into the temple just two weeks out of the year. 
So if you're a priest, you didn't go to the temple every day, not even every week, not even every month, just two weeks out of the year, except for big ceremonies, two weeks out of the year, you went to the temple. And then when you went to the temple, then a lot would be taken to find out who would go in to burn incense in the temple. And if you ever happened to be called upon to burn incense, that would be your once in a lifetime moment to do that. And that is what we pick up here. We read about Zechariah. Let's look at verse five of chapter one in Luke. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Don't sleep on verse six there. These were, quote unquote, good people. They were righteous. They did everything right. They were blameless. But verse seven introduces our problem. They were childless because Elizabeth, Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Of course he was. Take a moment and breathe with me for a minute and get into this historical moment, because I believe this is history, not fiction. This is not just a spiritual tale or folklore. That actually imagine for a minute that Zechariah finally gets in to burn incense, and there's no question in my mind that there would have been cooler talk, if you will, conversation around what it's actually like to get in there. Because here's an old man, never in his life has he been in there, never, to burn incense. And of all the things that he heard went on, of all the, the impressionable moments, of all the times when people came out and said that was a deep moving experience, or I maybe was moved to tears by that, or I, I felt paralyzed by the power of this moment, never was he told there was an angel that was going to come talk to you in the middle of burning incense. This is unprecedented. This isn't normal. The other thing in the back of his mind is most, most likely, what did I just do wrong? Because when you see an angel of the Lord, immediately you realize the power that's in the room and you don't have it. And the fear is, I may be struck down dead right here, right now. What did I do wrong in my process of burning incense? And so this is why in verse 12, Zechariah saw him was startled and gripped with fear. And then verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He'll be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents of their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." Pause it there again. Huge promise. Can you imagine your child coming with that promise? Congratulations, you're expecting. Here's what they're going to be. That's a big deal. Well, it's a crisis of faith for Zechariah. What's he going to do? How many years has he been praying about this? How many years has he felt betrayed, if you will? If I'm, this is how I'm using the word betrayed. I'm, I hope God will deliver, but he doesn't. I hope he'll come through, but he doesn't. Sometimes it's low-level betrayal. Sometimes it's big betrayal, like Judas with Jesus. 
or Benedict Arnold with the United States of America. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about low level. I wish it would, and it didn't happen. I would have preferred if I was in control, but it didn't work. How many years has he been going through this? And so now, in his old age, with all of his experience, I get an angel telling me I'm going to have a child. Now it is a crisis of faith, which is why he asks the question the way he does in verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Do you see what's under that question? What's under that question is I don't want to have faith anymore. I want certainty. I've been betrayed too much. I've been praying for too long. I'm tired of faith. I want certainty. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. In case, Gabriel, you didn't know. Verse 19, the angel said to him, it's a strong rebuke. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe or trust or have faith in my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I'll be honest, I can't blame the guy. The more experienced in life you are, the more betrayals you see. Am I right about that? The more you get older, the more people have let you down in your life, right? The more people that you've been in relationship with now that you're no longer in relationship with. The more things that have gone wrong, the older you are, the harder it is still to have faith and believe. And here's what I think happens. This is not in the text now, so we can debate this all day long, but I thought this may be helpful as we think about the cycle of belief or distrust. Here's what I think happens to us over and over again as I walk through this, see if you can relate. First of all, when God isn't predictable, we begin to lose faith. When God isn't predictable, we lose faith. I don't think that he's going to come through with my promise. And the next thing that happens for me, and maybe the next thing that happens for you, is we choose not to remember the good. I lose faith that God can come through, and I forget, not just forget, but I'm choosing not to remember the stories in which he ever has come through, because all that I'm focused on is when he hasn't. What happens then for me, and maybe for you, is I replace faith with suspicion. I begin to wonder, is God really here for my good? I hear that people say he is good, and maybe in church on Easter we say, oh, not Easter, excuse me, we say God is good all the time, all the time God is good. But I say it because people say it, but I don't sure, I'm not sure I really believe it, because I have replaced faith with some suspicion. And then sometimes what I do, and maybe what you do, is we place faith in others, expecting them to fill God's role. Because there's a yearning in my heart, and I think a yearning in your heart, to trust. You can't live without trusting someone. You want that, that appetite quenched. And so I'm going to maybe hope that the, the girl that I'm dating, or the guy that I'm dating, or the job that I get, or the money that I'll make, or the reputation that I'll have, will fill that hole that I really want God to fill. Because he's not predictable. But certainly the things that I can create will be predictable. And so I'm going to expect others to fill God's role. And you know what happens when we do that. We experience betrayal when others let us down. They simply can't be God and can't fill that role in our lives. And then finally what happens to me and maybe what happens to you is we grow numb and find it hard to keep trusting. And this is a cycle that we go through over and over and over again. And the older you are, the more experience you have with this cycle, just the reality. And I might argue that Zechariah has found himself here, maybe at the bottom of my list, that he's grown numb and finds it hard to keep trusting, which is why he says, I don't want to trust anymore. How can I be sure? How can I be sure? Because I'm tired of being betrayed by my hopes and expectations in a God who says he's good but never delivers. Now, the good news is, Zechariah's story isn't the only one in Luke chapter 1. Continue with me, but skip down to verse 26. Verse 26. 
of Luke chapter 1. And we're going to pick up another announcement from the same angel. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel, same angel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, of course, pause it there, take a breath, get in the moment, the historical moment. We're used to that language around Christmas time, but really, a young virgin, probably in the 14, 15-year-old range, all of a sudden gets a visit from an angel, Gabriel. How cool and relaxed is she going to be, right? Mary, verse 29, is greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great, and you'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. And then Mary asks a question. It sounds a whole lot like what Zechariah asked, but it's actually fundamentally extremely different. You see what it is there in verse 34? She asks the question, how will this be? How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Not how can I be sure, but how will this be? A 14, a 15-year-old girl, young and inexperienced in life, maybe she doesn't have enough tread on the tire, so to speak, to be worn down from all the betrayals of life that are yet to come her way. But either way, she gives a lesson to one who I would look at, and maybe you would look at and say, of the people who are the most spiritual in the story. Would I say a priest who has served his lifetime faithfully and been blameless before God, as verse 7 of chapter 1 says? Or Mary, a young virgin, 14, 15 years old? Not that I'm into comparing spirituality, but certainly one must argue that Zechariah certainly has a lot on his track record, and yet he struggled with faith because he's lived long through betrayal after betrayal after betrayal. Mary says, I'm willing to trust that. All right, this makes no sense. This is even more impossible than Zechariah and Elizabeth's situation, but sure, if you say so, I still have a question. How are you going to pull it off? I mean, I know you're going to. I just don't know how. How will this be? There's a confidence in her that isn't clearly in Zechariah, and it's a lesson for me and a lesson for you. Mary, I would say, made a wager that God is good, that he exists. Zechariah questioned that. And so this is why I say at the beginning of this thing that I want to encourage you this Christmas season to wager that God exists and that he is good. And I recognize it is a wager. It is a bet, if you will. I hope I'm allowed to talk about betting like this in church, betting of this nature. And I want to encourage you to wager that God exists and he is good. But I want to push that a little bit further and ask this question, how exactly do we wager on faith? How do I do that? How do I wager on it? How do I say when I wake up, I'm going to choose to risk it because I want to acknowledge it is a risk. Faith is not certainty. It just isn't. There's a risk to it. How do I wager on faith? And I would say this, two things. First of all, through remembrance, through memory. The problem with memory, of course, and you know this is true, is that when you choose to remember something, you remember all of it, the good and the bad. 
You really do. When you think about your childhood, you remember the good times, but you also will remember the bad. You can't fully separate them. When you remember a past relationship, you remember the good, but you also remember the bad and the struggle. You can't separate it. The question becomes, what are, if you will, the, the stories that I'm telling myself when I remember? What are the stories that I replay over and over in my mind? And I'll be honest, if I can be vulnerable with, with you guys here this morning, my tendency personally, and this is why my wife Jen is so good for me, my tendency is to replay the pain and the betrayal more than it is to replay the wins and the redemption. Many of you who've been around me long enough already know that. And you're like, well, I'm glad you're finally saying that, Tim, because we've known that for a long time. But I want to I be honest with you. This is a battle for me. My memory often is seared by pain and hurt more quickly than it is by redemption. But all it takes is one moment of somebody stepping in in kindness and faithfulness. And we have to ask ourselves the question of all the people who have interacted with me, who are the people who have acted most like God? Just about an hour ago in between the services, there was a, there was a couple of children playing in the back. And as they were chasing each other around in our little area there by the cake, one of them happened to run into the other one and, and the one kid fell into the, the radiator over there, um, and then, it wasn't funny. The kid fell into the radiator and started crying, but the other one ran away quickly after they realized what happened. We have two children experiencing pain at two different levels. And as I'm standing there watching that thing unfold, I realize here's what's happening in this moment. The child who hits the radiator is crying because they're in pain physically, but the child who's running away is immediately caught up with a sense of shame or guilt that maybe I did something wrong or maybe I'll get in trouble. And so they run, but they both run to parents to find their safety. And if they could, a week from now, a day from now, maybe later this afternoon, recount that moment, what would their story be of what happened? Because what I saw in there in that moment was both pain and healing wrapped into one. The pain of shame and guilt of maybe being the one to cause pain to someone else and the physical pain of being the one whose face ate the radiator. But what also happened in that moment was healing and care and love and affection from parents who knelt down on the ground, who brought them over, who cared, who drew them in. And there was redemption in the middle of pain and hurt. And the question is, when I remember the moment, what do I remember? Because there are stories of betrayal. I didn't expect to have my face hit the radiator when I came to church on a Sunday morning. I've been betrayed. And yet there's stories of redemption. My mom, my dad came and comforted me in a time of hurt and pain. And what stories, friends, do you remember? What is on replay in your mind? The question for me, and maybe the question for you, is of those people who have interacted with you, of how people have worked with you, who has been the most like God because he shows up? He exists and he is good. It's a wager that I want to encourage you to take. The second thing is this. I want to encourage you to wager on faith through small faith. I'm not even asking you for huge faith. I'm just asking for small. Mary gave us small faith, but it was faith. She's like, I don't understand, but tell me how. I have a question about how. Through small faith, I'm going to be very clear with this. For me, some days, this small faith is as simple as, do I have faith? Do I believe that there was a person, a historical person named Jesus who walked the planet? I'm not even asking you or me to believe in some amazing future or even in the potential of forgiveness or even in the you know, healing of shame and pain. Some days, it's like, do I believe that Jesus walked the planet? 
That is a centering place for me. The incarnation of Jesus is what we call that, when God took on flesh. And at Christmas time, that is what we celebrate. Through small faith, through saying, you know what, I don't know what the future is going to hold. I don't know if we're going to get what I want or not get what I want. I don't know how I'm going to heal from this pain of loss. I don't know what that future looks like. I don't know how God is going to bring all this together. I don't know if he's going to bring all of it together. But what can I place my faith in? And for me, that center for me is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that one day he was born and walked this planet. And then one day, it's the best evidence of history that I can cobble together, shows that indeed there was a man named Jesus who was crucified on a Roman cross. And some days that's all that I can place my faith in. But here's the thing. It's important to know how to win this wager. How do we know when we win? Because some days when all I can remember is that Christ came to this planet and went to a cross, how do we know when we win? When the greatest betrayals cannot erase even the smallest memories of faithfulness. That, my friends, is the win. When the pain of what you have lost in your loved one, in your health, in your disappointments about church or Christianity or our country or your family, or your children, or work. When the greatest betrayals of things that aren't working out, or you may think may never work out, when they threaten to cloud everything that you see, when you have the smallest memory of redemption, of hope, of kindness, of a stranger, of a friend, reminding you and stepping into that moment of pain and almost drawing you to their knee like the parents did with the children in the back an hour ago. When you have just the smallest memory, that, my friends, is what catalyzes faith. So when you stand in those moments where you don't know if King Kong will make it on the top of your tree, or if King Kong won't make it on the top of your tree. I want to encourage you, your faith and my faith is not contingent on outcomes. I'm not asking you to have more faith in outcomes. I'm asking you to have faith that no matter the outcome, this is a big wager, that God exists and that he is good. Now, for those who love the end of the story, I will tell you, King Kong unfortunately made it to the top of our tree, and we had, no clapping, no clapping. <laughs> See, our memories of faith and betrayal will be different on this one. I will tell you that right now. We had a ceremony last night to put King Kong on the top of the tree. We had theme music. We had everybody there. It was amazing. King Kong is now there. Maybe we'll send you a picture. Maybe we'll charge admission to make up for $50 it was spent on uh, Amazon on King Kong. But regardless, listen, isn't that where faith lives, though? We don't know, and you don't know, and I don't know, how God's going to work it out or if he's going to. Zechariah asked the question, how can I be sure? And Mary asked the question, all right, how will this be? Two different people. One older, evidently more spiritual and more mature. One younger, but confident yet that God somehow exists and he is good. Even if I have no idea how it will work. And so friends, this Christmas, I pray that the gift that you unwrap, if I can be trite as to say that. Uh, seriously, I hope 
that your faith and your wager that there is a God and he exists is a wager that you are willing to consider again. Because I don't want you, and I don't think you want you, wagering your life on the alternative. God exists, and he is good. You get to decide if you make that wager or not. Friends, I love you. I'm grateful for the chance to speak with you these Sundays that I get to be up here. And I pray that you'll consider that. And if you don't know or you're not sure about that, let's have the conversation. And may Christmas be a faith-filled Christmas for you. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to pause again and reflect on the challenge of faith, on the risk it is, on two people around this Christmas season, Zechariah and Mary, who had the opportunity to believe to respond. I can't blame the old man for the question he asked. Because the older we get, the harder it is to remember the stories of redemption in the middle of all the betrayal that we've experienced. We've experienced loss and hurt, trauma. And it's very real. And it hurts a lot. So when we are invited to wager again and renew hope again and to fan the embers to life again, I do not underestimate the big ask that that is. But God, I pray that you would help us to have the faith of this young girl, Mary, to trust. That even though I don't know how, you will because you exist and you are good. I pray that you would renew us at this Christmas season. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.